Uh, Romans chapter 15, if you would turn there with me. Romans 15. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 today, but Apostle Paul is starting to land the plane now. We only have two more messages uh, in our Roman series, and so we are almost done with this letter, which is hard to believe. And um, today we're going to be doing the first half of Romans 15, but really we're going to be zeroing in on one verse in particular. So let's go ahead and read this. Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. The word of the Lord. So over the last three weeks, we have learned two significant core principles that Paul is seeking to communicate to the Roman church here in the final chapters of this letter. And the first core principle that we've talked at great length about is the principle of agape love, um, which is self-sacrificial love. We've spent a good bit of time on that over the last couple of weeks. Agape love is the love of Christ. It is the love of God. It is the Greek word agape. It is the Greek word for self-sacrificial love. And we have, uh, as I said, talked at length about that. Um, The second core principle that we looked at was the principle of non-judgment. Rather than making ourselves the judge over another person's life, instead we seek to judge ourselves. Remember Jesus famously said, before you start worrying about the log or the speck in someone else's eye, worry about the log in your own eye. So we want to turn our lens of judgment inward, um, not to just inflict shame or guilt on ourselves, but to honestly assess where we are in our spiritual journey so that we might put sin to death and take steps forward. Non-judgment relies on us having a grasp, though, on issues that are of primary importance and issues that are of secondary importance. And so often in the church and in life in general, we get sideways with other people over issues of secondary importance. Or in some cases, and you see this in marriage all the time, in your marriage, this happens in my marriage, you get sideways with your spouse over something that at the end of the day is a petty issue, right? So 
That happens in every quadrant of life, not just in marriage. It happens in the church all the time. So often the things that we argue about are not those like apostles creed type issues that we talked about a few weeks ago. Like, is God the creator of all things? Is Jesus his son who came and died for us so that we might be reconciled to the father? Like these issues of gospel importance are issues of primary importance. And it takes a great deal of emotional maturity one, to differentiate between the two, but then to not pursue conflict with other people over secondary issues. Like that can be really, really challenging and it requires a great deal of emotional maturity and confidence in who we are. So agape-centered non-judgment, agape-centered non-judgment, self-sacrificial love non-judgment leads us to a couple of things. First, Last week we saw that agape-centered non-judgment will lead us toward sacrificing our preferences, our, our wants, our wishes, our desires, sacrificing our preferences for the good of others. We see that same concept repeated even in today's text, that we would not primarily seek to please ourselves. Now let's be real, that's how most of us live, right? That, that's what's been modeled for us by other people. We live lives to please ourselves. That's just what comes hardwired in us. And, and I think what Paul's pointing out is that's actually like, that's actually a part of our sin nature. That our default, our go-to, is to want to please ourselves first. And we easily justify it. How can I please anybody else if I can't first please myself? I'm doing this so that I can be more available to do what other people need of me. So agape-centered non-judgment will lead us toward sacrificing our preferences for the good of others. And, um, and in particular, last week, what he showed us was that agape-centered non-judgment may lead us to engage, uh, to, or to not engage, rather, in some perfectly fine behaviors because other people view those behaviors as being sin. We spent some time on that last week. If you want to dig into it, I encourage you to listen to that message if you haven't heard it or go back and listen to it again. Agape-centered non-judgment may lead us to not engage in some perfectly fine, non-sinful behaviors because other people we know and love view those behaviors as being sinful. So in the context of the Roman church, what we saw was a big issue was food. You had Jews who had grown up in a system where there are many things that you just did not eat because it was a part of the Mosaic law. And, and they had added to that law over the years. There were lists and lists of things that you could and couldn't do that you wouldn't find in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So there was a laundry list of things, but all of it originated in the original Mosaic law, the law that God handed down to Moses. It, it set in stone these dietary requirements. Well, Jesus comes along and fulfills that law. He, he sets up a new covenant that's based on his blood, but when you've grown up in this system and you've grown up with this understanding that these things are right and these things are wrong, that's not just a switch you can flip overnight, right? It's hard to just turn that off in your mind and go, oh, these things I've always done and these things that I look down on and think of as sinful, I can't just suddenly decide that they're not sinful and begin partaking in them. And so for the Jews, this notion was incredibly difficult and they wanted to look down their nose on Gentile, uh, Gentile believers 
who had not grown up with that same kind of understanding of clean and unclean, and these things are, are you know, um, clean to be eaten, or they're unclean because they've been sacrificed to other gods or, or whatnot. Gentiles hadn't grown up with that kind of understanding of what they were eating. So they come into faith in Christ without that lens, not desiring to practice those things. And so there is tension and conflict. And Paul says, or he said last week in our text, I believe that nothing is unclean in and of itself. And that was like what we said. That was an audacious statement. Like Jews would have been like, their brains would have exploded because they've grown up in a system where there are most definitely things that are clean and most definitely things that are unclean. So what Paul says is that agape-centered non-judgment may lead you out of a love for other people and out of a desire to see other people grow in their spiritual maturity. It may lead you to not do some perfectly fine things because other people see it as sinful. So in the case of the Jews and the Gentiles, Gentiles, this may lead you to not eat certain things because your Jewish brothers and sisters view it as sinful. So that's hard. That takes self-sacrifice, doesn't it? That takes humility in order to go, but what I'm doing is not wrong. And so rather than trying to prove your point and be seen as right and please yourself, instead I'm going to humble myself so that others might grow spiritually. So Paul's view is that it's not only better, but it's a sign of love. It's a sign of agape for you and me to make personal sacrifices so that another person might grow in their faith and maturity. The second thing that Paul says is that agape-centered non-judgment will lead us towards the virtue of patience. It will lead us towards the virtue of patience. But his language surrounding patience isn't suggestive, it's imperative. He's not saying you should do this, he's saying you have to do this. It's imperative language. In other words, Paul's not saying, I hope this happens, or I hope you do this. He's saying, you must do this. Uh, let's look at verse 1. I think I've got it up here on the screen. Verse 1. This is where we're going to camp out today. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So again, Paul has set up this strong, weak dichotomy, spiritually mature, spiritually immature. Those of us who are spiritually mature have an obligation to bear with the failings, or you could say the sins, of those who are spiritually immature. So remember, he's presented this delineation between strong and weak. Both the strong and the weak are Christians, in his view. They're both Christ followers, but the strong ones are those who are more mature in their faith. And I think Paul's language notes that he would consider himself one of the strong, which is probably good since he's an apostle, right? What he says is, is this, Paul, Paul believes that the cost of being a strong Christian, a mature Christian, is that you have a responsibility to those who are not. You have a responsibility, an obligation to those who are weak. And he's already scratched the surface of this topic by talking about how critical it is that the strong, as we just said, don't persist in activities that other people view as sinful. That's a way that we see a strong Christian like bearing with another person. So he's, he's talked about this a little bit, but he takes it a step further. And here's what I think he's saying. If you are a strong Christian 
then you need to operate as a servant to those who are weak. If you, are, if you view yourself as a mature follower of Christ, you need to see yourself as a servant to those who are not. You need to sacrifice your preferences, even if your preferences aren't sinful, and you need to have patience with the weak Christians when they fail or when they fall into sin or when they frustrate you or when they say something that hurts your feelings or when they do something that they've done many times before and you thought, man, I thought they were past that. Years ago when uh, I worked at The Hub, you know, The Hub has this program called Purchase that works with women who've come out of the uh, adult entertainment industry and women who've come out of human trafficking And one of the things that we saw constantly was that many of these women had had so much trauma in their lives that they were essentially in this suspended state of adolescence. Like they had never really emotionally moved into adulthood. And that was strange sometimes because you would meet women who were in their 40s, 50s, even 60s who had lived their entire lives in this horrific, degrading, um, brutal world. And, and just like we said, you can't like grow up Jewish and then suddenly the switch flips and things that were unclean are not clean. The same thing was true for many of these women. They couldn't grasp the notion of being free from that world. And many of them had lived in a suspended state of adolescence because it was self-preservation in a way. And so it was impossible for them like just overnight to go, hey, I'm no longer in that world anymore. I can now act like an adult. I can now grow up. That's really, really challenging. And so what happened constantly is you would have We would have women who were taking significant steps forward, who we had seen like big leaps and bounds, and then they would just like collapse and fall back into a former state of being or a former addiction. And so then it would be like, we got to pull them out of that hole again. And then months later, we get down the road, they've taken steps forward and then something happens and we're back here again. And so it was just this back and forth. It requires great patience to bear with those who are weak, to bear with those who are growing. And it's so easy for us to turn our our gaze towards other people, but just think about yourself and how God must view you. Think about your spiritual walk and the ways that you've done the exact same thing in your life. And think about how God has borne you. Think about how he walks with you. Think about his patience towards you. Think about his grace towards you, his long-suffering nature towards you. It's not only that we don't deserve his grace, but man, he's given us 40th, 50th, 60th chances. And, And you know he has to think, really, you're here again? Like after all these years, really, this is what's going on, and yet he bears with us. And so we are to look at his example and the example of Christ in the way that we interact with each other. If we understand the gospel, if we see what God has done for us, if we grasp that, if we've experienced in our lives, then our desire should be to want to show it to others. So Paul says, strong Christian, you quite possibly have other weak Christians telling you that some of the things you're doing are sinful, even though they're not. 
Rather than trying to simply prove that you're right and they're wrong, you should actually change your behavior so as not to impede their spiritual growth, so as not to like insert some kind of hindrance to them. Just this last week, I saw that uh, Carl Lentz, who is the, the like, very famous, uber-famous pastor at Hillsong, New York City, uh, he's Justin Bieber's pastor, famously, um, has been fired from his job because of multiple affairs, and, and also, I think, just from being a bully with staff and kind of abusing power and that kind of stuff. And, and here's the thing. You better believe that that affects weak Christians, right? When we see people that we perceive as being strong Christians act in weak ways and fail and sin, it becomes an incredible hindrance to those who are weak. It becomes a hindrance to those who are strong. And it's one of the reasons why it's so critical that we not first seek to please ourselves. Because it's not just pastors. Ideally, if there are people who view you as a follower of Christ, as I hope they do, as somebody who I would go to if I, if I needed somebody to pray for me, or if I'm looking for hope, then maybe I'm going to you or you. Like, that if there was some kind of significant sin in your life, that it could affect those people. So we're seeking to live in humility and not please ourselves. Does that make, does that make sense? You have an obligation to the weak. You have an obligation to the weak. And so what Paul does here is he says, you have to stay on the high road, and you have to embrace this foundational Christian discipline of patience, the discipline of patience. I'm reading a fascinating book right now called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. Super nerdy. (laughs) but it's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. I'm going to talk about this book a little bit on January 12th when we meet for book club and talk about the ruthless elimination of hurry because these two books dovetail perfectly together. But in this book, uh, theologian Alan Kreider, um, who is a church historian, he contends that one of the primary practices of the early church, like the church in the 200s and 300s, so not long after the time of Jesus and the apostles, that one of the primary practices for the early church was the practice of patience. And he highlights the fact that it's one of the things that was most often written about by the early church fathers. Sometimes you will see this word translated in different ways. Um, You'll see it translated as patience, obviously. You'll see it translated as endurance or steadfastness or long-suffering. You see these words pop up when you start looking for them, pop up all the time throughout the scriptures. And all of these words relate to the virtue of patience. And the New Testament paints this as a mark of true faith. Those who endure will receive the crown of life. Those who press on in patience and long-suffering will receive the reward of life together with Christ eternally. So endurance, patience, long-suffering, all of these things, steadfastness, are seen as marks of true faith. Now, here's why this is critical. So in this book, Kreider quotes a second-century Greek Christian philosopher named Justin and talking about the example of patience. And here's what he notes. 
Justin notes that his community, meaning his church, that his community doesn't consider people true Christians if they simply quote Christ's teachings, but don't live them. Just himself, or Justin himself rather, had insisted on this. Um, that should actually say Jesus himself had insisted on this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. Those were the words of Christ in Matthew 7. Further, Justin believes that the effectiveness of Christian witness depends on the integrity of the believer's lifestyle. So, so here's the point. For the early church, they're marginalized, they're persecuted, uh, they're living lives on the fringe, they are not accepted by mainstream society. So in their minds, the number one goal was not proclaiming the gospel, because why are people going to listen to us, right? Why are people going to listen to our words? We have no position, we have no power, we have no platform, so what do we do? We live differently than everybody else. And one of the ways that we live differently from everybody else is we practice patience, we practice endurance, one of the reasons Kreider believes that the early church exploded in the Roman Empire in the 200s and 300s was because so many Roman citizens watched patient, enduring Christians calmly going to their deaths. As they were tortured in the Colosseum, as they were torn apart by animals, as they were killed by gladiators, like all these things happened. And Roman citizens watched them, unlike all the other criminals that were being killed who were cowering, the Christians were calmly, patiently enduring the punishment and going to their death knowing that it was not the end. He believes that for many people, they saw that and went, what is that? So, just saying that you are a Christian does not make one a Christian. Just quoting Christ's teachings does not make one a Christian. We know this from reading the scriptures. This is not just something they believed. It's not only knowing it, it's doing it. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you to do? So, the effectiveness of our witness depends on the integrity of our lifestyle. If it's just gospel proclamation and is not backed up by a lifestyle of faith in Christ, then why would I buy into that? Why would I want that? There's no hope there. It's not compelling to me in any way. And we actually say this all the time. We say that we exist as a church to declare and demonstrate the gospel in all of life. That's kind of like our mission statement. It's why we're here, to declare Jesus' good news, but also to live Jesus' good news. We don't just exist to tell people about the gospel. We exist to show people the gospel as well. For the early church, they're marginalized, they're persecuted, as we've said. The demonstration was perhaps even more valuable than the proclamation. Because who was going to listen? No, if society was going to be swayed, and I think this is still true today, they have to be compelled by actions, not just words. And note, this is exactly what God has done for us as well. By sending Jesus. He didn't just give us a Bible, did he? No, he sent his only son, embodied, incarnate, and he went to his death and rose from the dead. And we see it. The New Testament says that, and we have seen his glory. 
right? It's not just words. It's not just wishful thinking. It's action. He showed us his agape by bearing with us, by enduring our sin, and rather than judging and punishing us, sacrificing himself on our behalf. So notice that language of bearing with sin or with shortcomings is, is like carrying language. I'm, it's like I'm carrying your sin. I'm, I'm holding it on my shoulders. I'm bearing it, which again is a way of emulating Christ. There's this old hymn called I Stand Amazed in the Presence, and there's a stanza in there that reads, he took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. That is what Christ has done. Now, notice the distinction here. He didn't validate our sin, did he? He didn't affirm our sin. He endured our sin so that we would see his example of endurance, so that we would see his patience and turn to him in faith. His kindness leads us to repentance. Not just talk, not just words, but his actions, his kindness, his grace towards us is what leads us to repentance according to Scripture. And what Paul is calling us to do is no different, that we would model the way of Jesus by enduring the weakness of others, continuing to love and serve them sacrificially in spite of their weakness, that we would, that we would carry it So let me ask you this today, because I think this is quite possibly the way that this plays out for us. On whom have you passed judgment? Remember, this all goes back to this idea of self-sacrificial love, practicing non-judgment, strong and weak. The strong are the ones, if anybody's not judging, it should be the strong. If anybody's bearing the frustration of other people, it's the strong because the strong have a heavenly eternal vision in which their spiritual maturity is actually being used by God to help other people move forward. So who have you passed judgment on? I think judgment can take a variety of forms, but typically in a courtroom, a judgment comes along with some kind of a sentence, right? comes along with some kind of a sentence. So maybe another way to ask that question is this. Who have you chosen to no longer endure? Who have you chosen to no longer put up with? Who have you said, I'm done with this ridiculousness? Who have you excommunicated? Who have you judged and sentenced? What would it look like for you to revoke that judgment? What would it look like for you to seek forgiveness for that judgment? For the early church, this is how people change. When strong believers model the way of Jesus over and over and over again in front of them. Think about your children. If you don't have children, think about kids. How do kids learn how to talk? They see it modeled. They hear it modeled. 
Does it happen quickly? No. It is a very slow process. You have to endure years of poor communication. Sometimes, even into adolescence. (laughs) Right? But the way they learn is not just by hearing about the mechanics of speaking. No, they learn by listening to you and watching you speak. Hearing how you form words, how you use words, watching you use words as well. We see this even with Penelope today, who's 14, 15 months old, like she will mimic the shape of our mouths, right? When we say certain words. This is how people grow. It's through your actions, backed up by your words, that other people change. And hopefully, it's how you change as well. As you look ahead to those who are farther down the road than you, to those who are more mature than you, and and by the way, it's easy to go, I'm not that mature, I know people are more mature than me, Yeah, but you are probably more mature than someone else. So this all exists on a continuum, right? Who are you looking to? Who are you seeking to mimic and model? Who who you see as emulating the way of Christ? The apostles called their readers to do that. Look, Look at me. Look at my example. I'm not perfect. But maybe in seeking to follow me, you will find Jesus. So praise the Lord, right? Praise the Lord that this is what Christ has done for us that he didn't give us empty words, that he didn't just give us a book and say, hey, read this, but that he stepped down out of heaven and and he embodied this. He modeled this self-sacrificial, agape, non-judgment. Notice that when Jesus came, he did not come bringing judgment. That will happen, right? He's coming back. He's made it clear when he comes back, he's bringing judgment. But as for now, He is patiently bearing with us. And he is modeling, not only through his own life, but through the lives of his followers, the kind of people he desires for us to be, people who look more and more like him. So today, let us resolve to center ourselves on Jesus' example to to like root ourselves there, to spend time in his word, learning him, learning from him, sitting at his feet so that we might seek to emulate it and practice it and to practice this patience, this endurance in our lives. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your grace and love. As always, we are undeserving And yet, Father, we are so thankful that you bear with us, that you endure our shenanigans. God, the the fact that we uh, continually fall back into sin, and I can't help but believe that you must think, like, how can they be back here? And yet we have all experienced that, Father, and we all need your grace and your Holy Spirit and also each other to take steps forward. Father, I pray today that more than anything that we would all leave with a lens to see the impact that we have on other people. 
And we may think we have no impact, but I think we would all be wrong. Or that our impact is low, and yet, God, you have given us your spirit and your gospel so that we might declare it and display it to others. Help us as we seek to do that. Give us words. Wake us up in moments where we need to practice endurance and patience with others. And Father, if there are those in our lives who we have judged, who we have maybe separated ourselves from, who we just won't put up with for a moment, God, give us an understanding of how to approach those people with your love and grace. Show us how we might endure those relationships for your glory and your good. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.